Remember a few weeks ago we had begun talking about the relationship of the law and the gospel. And last week we segued into talking about sanctification, the act of being set apart for God. And so today is in a sense, oops, got to get my tie all straightened out here. Let me get my microphone right. Um, today is really just part two of this message. And I want to just give you a little reminder where we left off. I would given you a definition of what sanctification means. And remember, sanctification is really synonymous with being holy. Holy means to be set apart. And the pinnacle of holiness is obviously God. Think of Isaiah 6, where we hear the superlative use of holy. God is holy, holy, holy. And we define the fact that he is both ontologically and morally different than his fallen creation. Ontologically comes from the Greek verb ontos, or the noun, which has to do with being. Okay, so when we talk about him being ontologically different, we're talking about him being different in his being. And last week we talked about his incommunicable attributes. Does everybody remember that? Well, his incommunicable attributes like his omnipotence, his um, aseity, remember we talked about that being his self-sufficiency, he doesn't need anyone else to exist. Those things God has alone. And so the mere fact that he has those attributes differentiates him from the creation, from us. But you and I are not held on the hook, so to speak, or in trouble with God because we're not omnipotent. He didn't create us to be that. But you and I can progress in what's called the communicable attributes, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those things that we read about in Galatians 5. Those certain things we can certainly become more Christ-like in our sanctification. And so what we defined sanctification to be is think about two different spheres again. Remember this from last week? We talked about the sphere of the holy versus that of the profane. The holy is that which belongs to God, and the profane is that which belongs to fallen creation. And so let me point to the board again. When you and I were saved by faith alone and Christ alone, all by God's grace alone, we were sanctified once and for all. We were placed in this sphere, and so we belong to God forever. Okay, so no longer are we part of the profane world. We've gone from one realm to the other, but the act of progressive sanctification is where we start thinking, not like those who belong to the profane world, but we start thinking and acting like those who belong to God. So we start acting like we are positionally. Does everybody understand the difference? Okay, so that's the progressive sanctification that we'll start focusing on here this morning. Now, I talked about complete sanctification. Remember, we talked about how we have been sanctified, we are being sanctified, and we will be sanctified. And God is the primary, I shouldn't say primary, He's the one who's done it all. Sanctified once for all. Think about Hebrews 10.10. By the will of God, we have been sanctified, perfect tense, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Bob has talked numerous times about once for all being hapax, once and never again. Okay, so that's our initial sanctification. And again, we are placed in the realm belonging to God. We're currently being sanctified. Passages that would support this, we'll see a few of them today. Hebrews 12, 14, where we're asked to pursue peace with all men and also the sanctification of God. So if we don't pursue that, we won't see God. That's Hebrews 12, 14. Also, 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, Paul says, Each of you is to know how to possess his own vessel 
in sanctification and honor. So yeah, we are being sanctified progressively as we think more like Christ and start to act like him. Yeah, Brian. I was wondering if the... um Mean, like we have the means of grace, would the means of sanctification be kind of the same thing? That is what they are, exactly right. And we'll talk about that uh, probably in part three. Well, what the means of grace are, what we devote ourselves are the tools that God uses so that he builds faith within us so that you and I will act differently than the world. Go back to the sphere. If you stop believing in the promises of God... You start living like the profane world that doesn't believe in the promises of God. But when you believe the promises of God and you act on that, now you're living like you positionally are in the sphere of the holy, that which belongs to God. And that's why believing the promises of God are so essential, and that's what the means of grace do. Yep, so that's God's, think of it, the four means of grace that we talk about from Acts 2.42, that's God's operating table in which he can operate upon our heart and enable us to believe. Think about the man, um, just a quick aside. Remember in Mark 9, there was the man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That is the predicament in a sense that all humanity is in. And, and maybe even more specifically, it's the predicament that believers are in. Because only believers initially believe at all. But we're in the condition where, yes, we believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. That's what sanctification is. We believe, yes, we're saved and once and for all. But it's a battle to believe daily, isn't it? Yep. So, yeah, good question. Thank you, Brian. So now let's just talk about the third one is, of course, we're going to be sanctified. And the passage that comes to my mind is, remember 1 John 3, 2? John says this. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And so there's a great promise that one day we will be completely conformed to the image of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be omnipotent. We're not going to share in his incommunicable attributes, but we will no longer sin against him. We will have a resurrected body that will no longer perish. Okay, so that's very exciting, and that's a great promise that we have to remember. So what I put up last week is we can't leave out any of these steps or we become unbiblical. God is sanctifying us. He has sanctified us, sanctified us, and he will sanctify us. All right, and we see a passage that teaches as much where Paul is giving here really a a prayer of supplication on the behalf of the saints. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Notice it says, Now may the God of peace himself, notice the himself, adjectival intensive. This isn't some surrogate or stunt double doing it for God. This is God who's going to do it. He says, Sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, about seven years ago, Bob probably remembers this, I actually found a chiasm. I always told Bob, I always complained, I can never see chiasms. Well, one day I finally found one. And it was in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 because I was teaching on the difference between dichotomy and trichotomy. Dichotomy, that's the position that Bob and I would hold to. That belief, Human beings are body and soul, material and immaterial. Trichotomists would say we're body, soul, and spirit. And so they see a distinction between soul and spirit. And they often appeal to this verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. But notice what the center point is, your soul. It really refers to the entire person. Okay, now what evidence would I give to you 
to support that. Turn your Bibles real quick. This is fairly interesting. There's many other passages I could support this with, but let's turn to 2 in Acts. Acts 2.43. Remember Acts 2.43, you just had Pentecost and 3,000 come to eternal life? Well, in Acts 2.43, it says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. So does everybody see in Acts 2.43 where it says everyone? That's passe pasuke. Passe means each or every. And pasuke is the term where we have soul. So it's literally every soul. So clearly, it's being translated correctly, I think, by the NASB Bible as everyone. So it's just generically soul is, being ref- is referring to a person in their entirety. Does everybody see that? So the term for soul is just referring to everyone. Everyone was having a sense of awe. All right? Pasuke. Uh, turn just five chapters forward, Acts 7, 14. And I'm just giving you a couple of references that just suggest this. There's many, 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 many we could turn to. I'm sorry, Acts 7, verse 14. Remember, this is the sermon that Stephen was preaching before he gets stoned. And he says he's recounting the dealings of Joseph with the patriarch Jacob and his brothers. It says in Acts 7:14, Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. The term persons is the term for soul. Okay, so it's used as the whole person. So here's the strength of this position then. We don't have to start dividing spirit and soul, okay? Because trichotomists will say, well, it's body, soul, and spirit are three different things. Well, that's not how it's being used here. Soul is referring to the entire person, whereas spirit is referring to the immaterial portion of the person. The body is the material portion. So what's being emphasized is the entire person is going to be sanctified and preserved complete. So does everyone see that? So that's what you see in C. C, D, and C. Everybody understand that? Well, then let's branch out to B. Notice his prayer is that we would be sanctified entirely and preserved completely. Well, then when you go out to A, who is the one who's doing it? Well, God is God himself. Adjectival intensive. And notice who is at the bottom. The parousia of Jesus. Who's responsible at Jesus' second coming? Well, Jesus is. And who's Jesus? Well, he's God. Okay, so God is the one who's responsible for sanctifying you and preserving you complete. And brothers and sisters, I cannot tell you how good a news that is because if sanctification were left up to me, I'd goof it up. Okay? I could screw up a one-car funeral. I could certainly screw up my sanctification. Okay? So it's great news. Now, as I say that, though, we know that we're in process also of becoming set apart, and there are obligations upon us. And we'll see those things listed in Scripture. Now, I gave you some homework from last time. It came from Romans 12. Let me read the passage, and then we'll pull out our homework. I'm sure you're all dying to get your rolls of data out here. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Now, what I'm starting to show you is, how is it that God is currently sanctifying us? We're going to see that God is primary, and that it's through the Word of God. All right, that's what we're going to see. So let's look at Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Let's stop there. Verse 1, what he's really talking about is obedience, isn't he? So the sacrifices of the Old Testament aren't what's necessary, but that of obedience. 
Now, why do we obey? Because we really believe. So if we really believe, we obey. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. Okay, so then in verse 2, though, he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Let's stop there. Metamorpho, where we get our term metamorphosis. So this is the goal in sanctification is to be transformed. And how are we transformed? He says, well, by the renewing of your mind. This is the purpose statement. So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the homework that I had you do is we were to look up two terms, the ones that I have highlighted red. First of all is your mind. What does it mean to be renewed by our minds or having our minds renewed? And remember we talked about the uh, Greek term was noose. Now, did anybody get a chance to look that up? Oh, Norm, what did you find out? Did you want to share? And hold on, we got to get you on. <laughs> well, there's, there's different definitions, uh, but the mind comprising alike the functions of perceiving and understanding and those of feeling, judging, and determining. Amen. That's exactly right. Well, well said, yeah. But then there's, there's another interesting thing about that, and this is Nelson's new illustrated Bible dictionary. Yeah. It says, well, we think today of a person's mind in a morally neutral way. In the New Testament, the mind was clearly thought of as, as either good or evil. And yes. that gives a lot of examples about that. Amen. That's well said. So it's the intellect. Yes, the faculty that's primarily being referred to is the intellect, but an intellect that's not divorced of our moral compass. In fact, it influences our moral compass. So you're right, in today's society, the intellect is sadly divorced from morality. In fact, you even hear it in Christian circles. Well, they've got their doctrine down, but, well, you know, what good is that? I mean, the, the idea is, no, our doctrine, getting it down, makes us think differently, and therefore we think sanctified. So when we think differently, see, when we used to think like the world, we we're in the one sphere. But now, through the Word of God, we're starting to think like God does in our intellect, and it, it forms our moral compass. And so that, that's a great definition. So can you just read that one more time just to make sure we, everybody heard it again? The primary definition? Yeah, the primary definition. I think that was very good. The mind comprising alike the faculties of perceiving and understanding and those of feeling, judging, determining. Amen. So the understanding would be primary, I think, in that. But yes, it affects our moral compass as well. Now, does anybody else have anything to share on that? Steve? Yeah, exactly right. And this is all over the scriptures. In fact, I'm going to have us to turn to a very important cross-reference in just a moment in Romans. And so we'll see the distinction between the old mind and having the new mind. But the primary idea, think of it this way. When we talk about saving faith and faith that sanctifies us, because remember, as we're on the journey towards the promised land, the idea is that we continue to believe so we don't stumble in the wilderness. Well, part and parcel to that is having saving faith. And part of saving faith is the intellect. Now, saving faith is more than just the intellect, but it's not less than that. Okay, so the intellect is primary. How can we believe in what we don't understand or know? And so in the noose, the term has to do with our intellect, but also the intellect forming our moral conscience. It's that sort of idea. But yeah, we'll, we'll turn to passages like that. So thank you. Daniel. Yeah, the passage is in uh, Ephesians 4.23. It says, and yeah, please that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah, and we're going to talk about that same idea. The reason why the Spirit is often referred to there, the Spirit, first of all, we can talk about our spirit. We have a human spirit. But the Holy Spirit has the primary role of changing our mind. And we're going to see that in our cross-reference in 1 Corinthians. Okay? So, in fact, turn your Bibles. I'll show you another cross-reference which talks about this. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Now, as you're turning to that, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, remember the context of 1 Corinthians. Remember in chapter 1, verse 18, you have the very famous passage. It's, I think, kind of encapsulates what chapter 1 is about where it says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Okay, so why is it foolishness to those who are perishing? Because they have a depraved mind. Their noose, their intellect, is still in the old world. And therefore, it cannot perceive the things of God. It is morally against the gospel. Well, then in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul argues that it's by the Holy Spirit that we end up having a renewed mind, okay? So the Holy Spirit is what regenerates us so that for the first time, we understand and believe the gospel. We're no longer morally opposed to it, and we believe. Well, then in 1 Corinthians two fourteen through 16, he says this. He says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So let's just stop there. Who's the natural man? Well, that would be technically the unregenerate. Now, why do we want to be very precise by saying the unregenerate? Because at the moment of regeneration is the moment by which the Holy Spirit enables us to believe. So at the moment of regeneration, you no longer are the natural man. You come to faith and you're a believer in Jesus Christ set apart once and for all. But the natural man belongs to the old sphere that which belongs to the fallen creation or that of the profane. And so they can't accept the things of God. Verse 15, it says, but, and here's the contrast, but he who is spiritual, in other words, you've been regenerated now, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. Now here's a quotation from Isaiah 40, verse 13. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now notice this passage here, 1 Corinthians 2, 16, very high Christology. Because Christ is being linked as synonymous with Yahweh himself from Isaiah 40, verse 13. Yeah, Brian. The same as when Jesus taught in parables and people that were not regenerate could not understand the parable. Exactly right. Matthew eleven thirteen. Jesus says to you, to his elect, to you it has been given the knowledge of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. The Greek term didomi, literally given. Yeah, you're exactly right. So that shows us... Oh, now, notice at the end, too, in verse 16, then we have the mind of Christ. The term mind there is noose. And this ties into what you're talking about, Steve, is we're called in sanctification to have a mind of Christ, to think his thoughts, to love what he loves, and to hate the things that he hates. And that is a process. It begins once and for all, you know, when we're set apart. But then there's a process where day by day we become more Christ-like. We start as we learn... In our mind, we're being transformed. We start thinking more like Christ. So think about when you first became a believer, there was probably a lot of garbage in your life that you don't have now. And think about that's encouraging, isn't it? Why is that? 
Well, because you think differently. And because you think differently, you start acting differently, right? If, if you thought that broccoli was bad for you, you would never eat it because it certainly doesn't taste good. But when you start realizing that broccoli is good for you, you start acting differently, don't you? Especially when you get older. You think, you know what, maybe I'd like to stay around a while. Yeah. Oh, okay, people like broccoli. Well, yeah. Peter, you got something? Yeah, amen. Well said. Yeah. So, all right, well, let me keep going now. I had one more thing I wanted to bring up to you is the term prove. And you guys, anybody get to look up that term? It was dokimatsu in the Greek. Did anybody get to see that? Anybody want to take a... Yeah, Peter's got something. Uh, to scrutinize. Yeah, exactly. We're a good discern. definition. Yep. Scrutinize. Yeah, it was used oftentimes in the Greek culture for um, testing of metals to see what's genuine and what's not. It's the idea of testing or scrutinizing to determine what's true, what's valid, that sort of idea. Exactly right. Anybody else have any? Uh, Norm. Norm's got a good definition. Uh, another verse that goes right along with that is Luke fourteen nineteen, where... The man goes to prove the oxen. He says, "Exactly, I, I have that doubt. Yeah. I got to go prove them." Well, yeah, read that to you or to everyone. Well, I don't. I'd have to look it up. Oh, okay, I've got it here. Do you want me to read okay, it? Yeah. Let me read what Norm's talking about. Luke fourteen nineteen. Um, remember, this is it's in Jesus' parable where the man has a dinner and he invites all these guests, but they all come up with lame excuses. They don't want to come. The idea is the the dinner. The guy who's throwing the dinner is God. And in the culture of the day, it's a severe insult to reject them. So all these people are coming up with lame excuses. I got to go check the, the food in the oven, and I got to go. Well, here's one of the lame excuses. Luke 14, 19, yeah. It says, another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Okay, but what Norm is pointing out is the term dakimatsu is try them out. In other words, he's going to weigh to discern to, if they're, you know, good oxen or not, okay? So it's the idea of being able to judge and to discern which is good and which is not so good. Yeah, so Luke 14, 19. Another good passage, 1 Thessalonians five twenty one. Paul gives, this is a command from Christ. Paul's his spokesman. He says, but examine, there's dakimatsu, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. Well, how can you and I hold fast to that which is good if we can't discern what the good that God wants is. And so and that's part of obviously being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So we want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so we start thinking like Christ. We start loving the things he loves and hating the things that he hates. I want to show you those who don't have a mind that's renewed. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, 28. Interestingly enough, before Romans 12, just... 11 chapters earlier, Paul is talking about those who have a depraved mind. These are people who are unregenerate, and they can't think and love the things that God loves. In fact, they hate the things of God. Romans 1.28, Paul says this, he says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Now, notice in the verse there, in Romans 8, 128, it says, And just as they did not see fit, 
The term fit there is dakimazo, it's the verb. So they didn't discern to acknowledge God. In other words, in their discerning process, in their intellect, they didn't acknowledge God, but instead, Paul has already elaborated that they worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who was forever praised. So because their mind is depraved, they couldn't discern that they should worship God. Instead, they worshiped idolatry, idols, the creation. They made gods in their own image. Now, notice here, so that term is dakimatso, but also notice it says God gave them over to a depraved mind. The term depraved is aki or a dakimas. So dakimatso is the verb, dakimas is the noun, a is without. If you're a theist, you believe in God, a theist, no God, right? So a dakimas is a depraved noose mind. So someone who has a depraved mind cannot discern that they should worship God. Instead, they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. So the process of sanctification is where we have a renewed mind where we start again thinking more like Christ than we do the world. That's the battle. The battle is a battle to believe and to think differently and therefore to act differently. If we don't think differently, we're not going to act any differently than the world. So that's the battle. All right, now, we had also another round of homework, and that is, and by the way, I goofed up on this. There's another term I should have put on here. We were to look up sanctified, sanctifies, sanctifies, and I should have had sanctification on there as well. But did anybody look those terms up? Hey, guys. All right, Norm. (laughs) All right. So what's the question? (laughs) Norm, what were your findings? Uh, What we want to do is we want to start focusing on when we look at those terms, and I grant there's many more terms we could look at, but this is, I think, a good representative example. When you look those up in your English concordance, did you find, just numerically speaking, did the majority of them speak of what God does for us or what we do for ourselves in sanctification? Most of them refer to what God has done for us in the past. Yes, exactly. Say that uh, again. I want to make sure everybody hears that. Like, I'm looking at sanctified here. Most of the verses refer to what God has done for us in the past, that he hath sanctified us. And and, uh, there's just, just a whole lot of we... We are sanctified. He has sanctified us. We see that terminology yeah. over and over again. Yeah, amen. Which is a little surprising because normally you think of sanctification as something that is progressive and it's going on, which it is, but, yeah. but there's a lot of examples of past sanctification. That's the surprising part of it. Exactly, and it is. It's an eye-opener, isn't it, to yes. see how many are about us positionally being sanctified yes. once and for all by God's work. And yes, it's not to deny that we are being sanctified, but yeah. the totality of all the evidence the focus is on what god has done right. once and for all and will do um, yeah absolutely yeah. Yeah. well said well you know what i do is i've got a bunch of the passages down here by the way welcome all you Oleans here good to see you merry christmas <laughs> um, what i'm going to do is i'm going to start going through the verses and again these are just from our english concordance it's not designed to be exhaustive because there's sometimes there's terms like holy that we're leaving out remember holy and sanctified is very similar in fact, synonymous most often. So, but let's look at the terms. I just took this right from the NASB concordance, just like you would have. And I want to start with sanctify. We're going to go through the data, okay? And the reason we're going to do this is so that you get the overwhelming sense that, yeah, you know what? God is the one who's primarily 
responsible for our sanctification, yet there certainly are passages where we are also to obey. For instance, John seventeen seventeen. here, remember during the priestly prayer Jesus gives, he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So he's praying to God, and the implication is God is the one who will set us apart, right? How about uh, John seventeen nineteen? Jesus says, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus is set apart. Okay, so if, in a sense, he's the set-apart one par excellence. Set apart from the world, belonging to God. He is the one who lives the perfect life that we can't. And he also brings atonement. Yeah, Peter. It seems odd that he sanctifies himself. Sure. Now remember, what's our definition of sanctify? It's to be set apart, right? So the anointed one, the Messiah, he is the one who is set apart to do for humanity, for his people, make it more defined, for his people what they could not do for themselves. So he is set apart then from the world for that purpose. So he is different than the profane, that which belongs to fallen creation. He belongs exclusively in the realm of the holy, that which belongs to God. And so it is through faith in him then that we have a derived sanctification, By faith in Him, we are positionally once and for all set apart. Why? Because we're with Him. We belong to Him. And so He's been set apart in a sense for us. Okay, so that's... So sanctification really can't be divorced from salvation, being set apart. And also can't be divorced from uh, predestination, being destined to be set apart and to belong to God and not this world. So does that help, Peter, uh, to see the connection with... Yeah, yep. So again, yeah, Jesus is our, he's the one who represents us in that. Yep. Okay, so let's keep going here. We'll just look at a lot of data. I'll try to go fairly quickly here. Ephesians 5.26, remember 5.25, I just have to, there's a purpose statement here. 5.25 is Paul saying, husbands, love your wives just as Christ, what, loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's the purpose statement, so that he might sanctify her. Well, sanctify whom? Well, the church, okay? Having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word. Okay, so who's responsible? Is it us or God in Ephesians 5, 26? Well, of course, it's Christ. He's God. So all three, we've seen God is the one who's doing the sanctifying here. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, we've already looked at this passage. We saw the chiasm there. But now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Notice himself again, the adjectival intensive. This is God himself doing it. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so God is responsible in each one of those. All right, now, Hebrews 9, 13. It's going to be a lesser to greater argument. The writer of Hebrews says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... Verse 14 goes, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So certainly here, the sanctification is from God. Remember, even when the Israelites are giving sacrifices in the Old Testament, you might think from a personal level, they've got a lot of animals and they're doing a lot of care of these animals, the goats and the lambs, etc., 
What's very interesting is in Leviticus 17.11, the Lord says about their sacrifices that he has given it to them for atonement. So what's interesting is God is the one who's provided atonement in the sacrificial system so that they may be set apart. So the sanctification, even in the Old Covenant, it was what? It was from God. That's the primary mover in the sanctification, setting his people apart. Okay, now let's move on. Hebrews 13, 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Okay, so remember the animal in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, you'd have the one goat that would be brought outside, and the sins of all the people were placed upon him. That was the scapegoat. In the same way, Christ is led outside the gate, and he is to do that to sanctify, set apart his people once and for all. Here's 1 Peter 3.15, somewhat unusual. I put this in the other category. In other words, we're trying to say, look, is the focus of sanctification on us or on God in these passages? Well, in a sense, this is the other category. Why? Because it has to do with sanctifying Christ in an apologetic, giving a rational response. Now, here's why. 1 Peter 3.15 Peter says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So this is certainly something we're commanded to do. But remember that the big issue in the culture of the day is many people believe that the Roman emperor is Lord. He's kurios. But Peter's reminding them that, no, he's not Lord. You set apart Christ as Lord. We're to fear the Lord and not the Roman emperor. And so the basis of giving a rational defense for people who ask is to realize you don't bow your knee and answer to the Roman emperor, but to Christ. You don't fear what the emperor can do to you or what man can do. You fear what Christ can do. So it's in that sense we set apart Christ. Yeah. Could this also be um, dating? <laughs> <laughs> When I read, uh, but, set, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, I think of also that it's Christ alone, right? Yeah. So you're setting apart Christ from any other thing that well you would said. believe in. Yep. Okay. Exactly right. Yeah. Whether it be the emperor or anything else, we, we answer to him. And this is the idea of, you know, the beginning of knowledge, the fear of Yahweh. We see that in Proverbs 1. Yeah. Yep. So we're to sanctify. So I put this in the other column. Um, it's certainly something we are to do. But the idea is to set apart Christ. It's not really about our sanctification per se, so that's just the way I thought of it. Okay, now let's keep moving. Sanctified. We've moved on to a different category of word here. It's uh, just the past tense typically. Typically, by the way, sanctified is in the perfect, although sometimes it's in the aorist. Uh, Matthew twenty-three seventeen. Jesus, remember, dealing with the Pharisees and religious leaders in the temple. He says, you fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Okay, so what's the point? They were upset when people would make an oath by the gold and break it. But when they'd make an oath by the temple, that was no big deal. He's saying, well, where are your priorities? The temple represents God, and it's his provision so that you may be sanctified. And so in a sense here, the sanctified, what is it that sanctifies the gold? What's well, the temple? Well, who gave the temple for the sake of the people? God did. Okay, so again, that's under the Old Covenant, but still, it's, I think the priority is on God. John 10, 36, uh, this is Jesus again wrangling with the Jews. He says, do you say of him, that's talking about himself, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. So again, there we see Jesus is the sanctified one par excellence. And 
He was set apart for what? For our good. That's what we see again in John 17. Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus was set apart from the world so that by faith in him, you and I may be set apart from the world. Okay, so again, the focus is on what God has done there. <coughs> Acts 20, 32, this is where Paul is giving admonishments and, and helps to the Ephesian elders. And listen to what he says. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, Adam, do you have your Greek there? In Acts twenty thirty two, do you have, is it a perfect? For, or, for which? Um, the sanctified at the end of Acts twenty thirty two, Or is it... Yes, Aris- it's in the perfect. It's in the perfect, okay. So typically, why don't you give us, by the way, we've got a good linguist here. Let's give us a good definition of the perfect, a good gloss for it. Well, actually, it depends if you're dealing... Uh, with it in the, in the active uh, or not? Is it in the active, uh, indicative? Here, I think it's a uh, middle middle passive. Middle passive. So okay. Really, it has to do with a, a state uh, in the the present. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So something that was complete in the past, but the would you say that there's ongoing ramifications? Well, a lot, a lot of times there's something implicit uh, in the past, but okay. more more when you're dealing with the the active, uh, then it deals middle more past. with uh, in action uh, or an event, a state of affairs that was completed in the past, okay. but has uh, a ongoing relevance in the, the present. That's a great ongoing relevance. Yeah. That's the term I was looking for you to say. Now, is this a participle or a verb there? It's a participle. Okay, because then we also have to look at the verb and how it plays off of the verb, but um, we, we won't go in that far. But the point is, it's obviously something God has done for his people. So. So, yeah, okay, let's keep moving on then. Let's go to, remember Bob talked about the bookends of Luke-Acts, the idea of turning from darkness to light? Well, we see that again here in Paul's address to Agrippa. And remember here, Paul is recounting the words that Jesus told him on the road to Damascus, his commissioning. So Paul, what you're looking at on the screen is Paul describing Christ's words to him. So Jesus said this to Paul, and Paul's recounting it before Agrippa. He says, to open their eyes, this is the purpose for Paul's ministry, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among, among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Okay, so notice turning from one realm to the other. You're turning from the realm of Satan, that which belongs to the profane, to the next realm, the other realm, that of the holy, that which belongs to God. Okay, and the sanctified, obviously, is an act of God here. Okay? All right, for the sake of time, I'll keep rolling here. Romans fifteen sixteen, Paul, again, talking about how he is qualified to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So as he preached to the Gentiles, the Gentiles came to faith, and they were sanctified, set apart for God set apart from the world. Again, obviously, um, something that Paul did, he preached, but God is obviously the one who's doing the work, isn't he? Continued on, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, 
with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Notice sanctified in Christ Jesus. So think about how many times that term occurs in the New Testament. It's oodles of times. The idea of being in Christ, in him, in Christ Jesus, in Jesus Christ, in him is a big deal. Because when you're in the sphere of Christ, you're set apart from the world. He was the one who was set apart for you. You're with him and therefore you're set apart. And as you live your life, you're to think more like him. Again, loving the things that he loves and hating the things that he hates. That's the process. But again, the focus here is on what God does. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Remember, this is the passage where uh, don't think that all these immoral people will inherit the kingdom of God and he has a long list. Well, then he says in verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. Sanctified there, uh, Adam, passive, right? Is that... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. It's passive more than likely here, so meaning the outside agent that's doing it is implied it's God. God is doing the work there. I could have this in my notes if I was really on the game. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I think it is. I think it's a perfect passive. Um, I think it's either a perfect passive participle or verb, but... I'll, I'll keep moving for the sake of time. 1 Corinthians 7.14, Paul says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband, for otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. What's that about? Well, that's about don't get rid of your unbelieving spouse. Right? So Paul has argued not to be unequally yoked, but if you have an unbelieving spouse, you don't jettison that person. Why? Because they're considered set apart because they belong to you if you're a believer. Now, why would that be? Well, not because they're automatically saved, because they are, it's, you're not saved by familial relationship, but it's the idea that being set apart by being with a believing spouse means you're going to hear the gospel. In fact, just two verses later, he talks about how do you know, oh, believing husband or wife, that your spouse will not be saved from you, that is, from hearing the gospel. So that's the idea of being sanctified. The idea is being set apart by belonging to a believer because you're hearing the gospel, whereas otherwise in this pagan culture you wouldn't. It's that sort of idea. Okay? It, it was Aorist, uh, so passed. I mean, it, it comes through. Oh, okay. Oh, it was Aorist. Okay, I'm sorry. So it was, and it was passive. Aorist passive? Uh, yeah. Aorist passive. Gotcha. Great. Thank you. Yeah, Aorist. Passive? Passive. Um, so think of active voice. I hit. Passive, I get hit. Okay, so I'm the, I'm the subject being acted upon. Does that make sense? By an implied outside agent. And so when you see a passive, the question you want to wrestle with, well, who's the implied agent that's doing that? Well, of course, in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, it would be God. So the active person is God. Yep, yep. He'd be the agent that's doing the, the work, yeah. Unless you can come up with a better alternative, Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so oftentimes it's called a divine passive. Yep. All right. Okay, now let's continue on here. We're just going through all the data, so you just see the weightiness of it. First Timothy 4, 5, Paul says, For it is sanctified by means of the word of God in prayer. By the way, what is being sanctified? Well, the issue is you had false teachers who were teaching the doctrines of demons, according to 1 Timothy 4, 1. What were the doctrines of demons? forbidding marriage and food, right? So now, did God ever forbid marriage? Well, no. 
Did he have food laws? Well, at one time, yes, but no longer under the new covenant. Okay, so he says it's sanctified by means of the word of God. Now, what's interesting in the pastoral epistles, the word of God is often a reference to the gospel or the new covenant in particular. We see evidence of that in 2 Timothy 4.2, Titus 1.3, Titus 2.5, etc. So what we understand in this passage then, what is binding is what? The new covenant. Okay, so it's sanctified because if it's set apart under the new covenant, is that what you're free to do? Well, then you're free to do it. The new covenant is what's binding, right? It's not some joker on the street who says you can't be married. I'm not bound to that joker. And I'm also not bound to the law of Moses when it comes to uh, the idea of food laws. Jesus declared all foods to be clean in Mark chapter 7. Okay. Now notice also by the word of God and prayer, we bless God because we remember that he's created all things and we give thanks and blessings to him because we know that they're for our good, right? And we're free to partake in these things. And so that's what Paul's referring to, that are set apart because we know we're not bound to not partake in these things. And we're thanking God who's created all things. Okay, so they're set apart. They don't belong to the profane world then in that way, that the way the false teachers were claiming. Okay, 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things... He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, here in this passage, although the sanctified technically is something that God is doing, this is a passage that has to do with what we do. Why? Well, he says, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, what things? Well, immoral things. Okay, so here's the idea. The sanctified, do you have this one, Adam? This is an important one we want to get. 2 Timothy 2.21 the reason why is I think this is a, a sanctified as a passive again. More than likely, God is the agent. Yeah. Here it's a perfect passive. Perfect passive, so yes. The, the, the focus is on the, the present state, but exactly. uh, a lot of times with those, there's still an implicit. Uh, what happened in the past? That, that brought about this uh, state. But in present, the present, it's really focused on the, the present. State. Amen. Yeah. Exactly right. So the idea here then, this would be God who sanctified us. But notice. There's something we are to do. We're to cleanse ourselves if anyone cleanses himself of these things. So how do we wrestle with the interplay between what we're to do and what God has done? Well, the idea is this. If you're really saved by faith in Christ and you're set apart, you're to act like it. Okay, it's like the uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who is at work for you for his good pleasure, right? So the idea then is you and I are to act in the way that we are positionally. We've been positionally set apart, and we are to act like it. Now, what if we never act differently than the world? Well, it may be an indication that we don't really believe, and therefore we haven't really been set apart. That's what Peter's talking about when he says, make your calling or election sure. It's not that we're earning our salvation. It's the idea that we, if we never act any differently than the world, are we really set apart? There should be evidence of it. Where, yeah. where it says a vessel for, for honor. Yes. Uh, the, the sanctification there, uh, being sanctified, uh, is uh, a state that's uh, in, the, in the future when, when these things uh, come about, when we yes. uh, do these things here, just as you're uh, saying. Yeah, amen. Thank you, Adam. Yes. Yeah. What, okay. What would your comment be on people who say, well, let go, let God? I <laughs> Yeah, Bob, please. <laughs> I'll that, grab a drink. That, that slogan came from Keswick Holiness, which was a movement 
in the late 19th century in England. Yeah. And people would go to these Keswick Holiness meetings. And the idea was, it's kind of a Wesleyan idea of entire sanctification. And so it isn't so much us doing anything. It's, it's having an experience that they call total surrender. And once you've experienced total surrender, then you're perfectly sanctified. And it's actually Christ who's doing everything, not you. And so in a sense, you almost lose your identity. Wow. And I consider Keswick holiness false doctrine, pure and simple, unbiblical. Amen. Amen. Well okay, said. Thank you, Bob. Thanks. Good question, Norm. Yeah. Can't say any better than that. Okay, I don't know if this really fits here, but this is, I'm going to be honest, because this is the struggle that I've had with this whole leaving the mosaic with all of the teaching I have had, you know, since a kid. Sure. But, you know, in Matthew, Jesus talks about consider the cost of discipleship. And becoming a Christian does not bring your best life now, which everyone in this room knows, you know. But you go out into the world and that's the message that you get and you're going to have the perfect family the perfect job your relationships everything's going to be perfect and so you have this constant struggle because you know it's not the reality but yet you know what the word teaches if you've been in the word long enough that you have to persevere and so we live in a world right now where feelings trump everything everything is trumped by how I feel about it. And so we have to jettison these feelings, and we have to look and just, you know, it's kind of like you were saying, you know, help my unbelief, because it's these promises. And you guys, I mean, that's where my heart is just so thankful for you guys. Ever since we have moved on and from the hotel, you have been stressing, trusting in these promises, because it is all we have to get us through this very, very difficult, difficult life. And the goal isn't my best life now or having the perfect countertops in my kitchen. It's my glorification that comes through suffering. But that's not the message you hear. And so we're in this constant battle and constant conflict and self-talk about, I don't care what I think about it. This is what it says about it. Yeah. Well said, uh, Luanne. Yeah, amen. Well said. That preaches very well. You can't follow that. Yeah. I, I really can't add to it either, Luanne, other than just to say you're right. Um, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're, not, we're inviting hardship upon ourselves, and that's what Jesus routinely teaches, that when we, the world hated him, so therefore it's going to hate us. And so we're looking for that promised land that the best is yet to come. And so our home isn't here, and you're absolutely right. The focus in the scriptures is on the promises of God, not in having our best life here and now. Absolutely, yep. Um, We're inviting hardship when you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and that's something that's not very popular to the world. And false teachers will play on the idea, if there's something wrong in your life, They'll play on your emotions and say, well, there's got to be some secret that you don't have that they'll come up with and write a book for. And so, hence, you have to buy their book and follow them. And then you'll have the granite countertops and everything will go splendidly with you. But when you read the Bible, you say, you know what, this is the way the world is. If Christ would lose his life, he's calling me to take up my cross daily. Yeah, that's, that's the way the real world is. Yep. So you're right. We have to stay. When I was a pilot, I remember... Um, when you first learn to fly on instruments, you'll, 
the first time you get what's called vertigo, and I don't know if anybody's ever flown in the clouds, but you'll feel like you're turning to the right, and yet your airplane is straight and level. Or you'll feel like you're straight and level, and you're actually descending to the left, or whatever the case may be. The point is, you can't go by emotion. You can't go by your feelings. You have to stay on the instrument panel. Your life is on that instrument panel. I thought about so many times flying, I mean, two in the morning, doing an ILS. Um, ILS is an instrument landing system. You go down to 200 feet above the ground, a half-mile visibility, and you're doing 150 miles an hour, especially when you have ice on the airplane in the middle of the night. And I remember thinking, my whole life is on this little instrument. That's it. If this fails, and the captains or the, the co-pilot, if I was captain, who, you know, if our instruments fail, if that goes, we're done. You know, in, in a sense, that's the Christian walk. It is all here. This is our instrument panel, and it defines our true attitude it defines, attitude is which way you're turning. It defines reality. But if we jettison it, then we're no different than some joker who's flying in the clouds who thinks that they can do it by the seat of their pants, and they crash 100% of the time. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Cindy. Yeah, you were talking in Romans um, about the transfer, transformation of our minds. Yeah. And um, I was just listening to reviewing Dean Gocher's presentation on the what he calls the diaprax, the dialectic. Sure. And all and what and what Luann was saying about the world bases their their thinking on feelings, not on facts. That's what transformational Marxism has done to our culture. We've gone from fact based on the scriptures to feeling based, and the whole the whole process is to change those attitudes, values, and beliefs, or the mind. That's right. That's right. You're, you're so so well said. Yeah, it's the idea of well, you have on the one hand someone's idea, thesis, and on the other hand you have someone else's idea, the antithesis. So let's just cut it in the middle, and we're going to come to a synthesis. And you're right. That's ingrained in our culture. Now think about that. Let's go to um, flying again. Okay, half the side, one side of the aircraft says, I feel like we're 1,000 feet too low. And the other half says, well, I think we're 2,000 feet too high. Well, we'll just cut it down the middle and we'll, we'll you know, well, you couldn't fly that way. Um, Bob makes the joke of the postmodern uh, mushroom hunt. <laughs> you can't operate that way. There's truth. And you're right, we're, we're fighting uphill against that. And, um, but yeah, the scriptures are what define truth. And that's how we have a transformed mind, a, re- a renewed mind, a new... Uh, the intellectual faculty that understands the things of God and therefore we think differently and therefore we act differently. Yep. Well said. Well, I know we're almost out of time. Um, Let me just see how far I can get through these things here. Hebrews 2.11 says, uh, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, so again, sanctified here would be an act of God. Hebrews 10.10 by this will, this is the thalema, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Um, you don't have to look this up, Adam. I believe I remember Hebrews 10.10 is a perfect passive indicative, if I recall correctly. Um, so again, the once and for all idea would have the hapax once and never again. So again, again, this is what God has done for us. Okay. Now, I know we're running out of time. Let me, um, for the sake of time, let me, you can look all these up on your own. Let me skip to the Bottom line here, I want to get to uh, 
we looked at sanctify, sanctified, sanctifies, and sanctification just in our English text, our English concordances, 33 times they are used. 28 of them have to do with what God has done for us. Four times it's about our responsibility, and one time is the other, what I would put in the first Peter 3.15, sanctify Christ in your hearts. Okay? That's the data as I broke it down. So what that just shows you is that the emphasis in the scriptures, when you look at the sanctified word group, is on what God has done. Now, does that mean that there's no responsibility for us? No. It doesn't mean that there is. We are to believe the scriptures and we are to obey. But it just shows you that the primary work and mover in our sanctification is God. And praise God for that. That's what Paul's prayer was in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that God would sanctify us completely. Brothers and sisters, if it were up to us to do it apart from God, we'd goof it up wouldn't we? So I just wanted you to see that the emphasis on, uh, is on God. And again, you can look up all those passages and weigh them out for yourself. But I wanted you to see a lot of the data so that when Bob or me or Adam or whoever else is teaching here and we talk about the promises of God and what God has done, you know that we're not cherry picking. That's the data. Yeah. Peter. I know this is down another bunny trail, but this is uh, before we conclude here, but this is for Dan and yourself. Now, Dan, from uh, our past, Catholic tradition teaches you're sanctified through church membership, does it not? Is Dan here? Oh, there he is. Infant baptism through the Catholic Church. Yeah, um, baptism, they, the Catholic doctrine in baptism is they believe it works what's called ex opere operato. It's by the act done. And so the very act of baptism is what regenerates. Okay, And so that would be initially what sets someone apart. And so it's not by faith. It's by the act of baptism. Yeah. Now, faith isn't rejected outright, but it's the act of baptism itself. If it's done by a priest, it's the act done that will separate or sanctify them uh, set them apart initially, yeah. Um, yeah, well, in, in their justification, they believe in an in inherent justification we, or an, in, an infused one, sometimes is what they would call it. You and I believe in an imputed one. So we believe in a forensic justification, one that comes from the outside and is given to us freely by God. They believe in a justification that's a process whereby you become good enough to be with God, hence purgatory and all of those things. And faith is certainly part of that, yeah, yep. So that's the difference, yeah, yep. Okay, well, with that, I'm, we've got a lot more data to go through. We'll hit that next time. But um, I was just so glad to go through much of the data with you today. And I hope you see that, yes, God is the one who's responsible for our sanctification. And yet, yes, there's things that we are called to do as well. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have sanctified us once and for all in your Son and that you are in the process of making us more conformed to the image of your Son day by day. I do pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would remember your great promises and that we wouldn't shy away from your commands, knowing that your commands are for our good. And you say, Lord, in your word that those who love you obey your commands. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that the word would fall upon us richly today as Bob preaches the word and reminds us of the great promise of the sending of the Son. We thank you for your word. 
We thank you for all of your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.